Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with Dan Brown, designer and co-founder of design agency Eight Shapes and author of Designing Together and Communicating Design. Brown talks about managing designers, embracing imposter syndrome, and why he says the most important skill for designers is self-awareness. Enjoy the show. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. It is my absolute pleasure. I'd like to start off with you talking a little bit about what you currently do and how you landed in your pre- present position. So my origin story. Yes. Right. Yes, please. I was I was bitten by a radioactive spider. <laughs> and really, I was conflicted. No. Uh, so uh, I got into the web business when it was not really even yet a web business. And back then, we all were kind of jacks of all trades. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so I was doing uh, HTML mostly. There was no such thing as style sheets or JavaScript or anything like that. I taught myself Perl, which is a programming language that we used back in the day. In fact, I think I bought a couple of O'Reilly Perl books. Um, and I was working for a book publisher, not O'Reilly, uh, and we were selling books uh, online. Um, and when I moved to Washington, uh, I joined a company called US Web. US Web was kind of one of the first uh, big internet consulting companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I decided to specialize uh, in uh, information architecture, which was just emerging uh, at the time. That was 1997 mm-hmm. or eight, I guess. Uh, uh, Polar Bear Book had come out. We were all super excited about that. Uh, and I realized that what I loved more than anything else was not the programming side and not necessarily the graphic design side, uh, but more how uh, these websites were structured. Um, I love that stuff. And I, I got, um, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my career thinking about that when, uh, the bottom dropped out, uh, of, uh, the internet world, uh, in the early two thousands, I ended up doing what a lot of people in the DC area do and going into government, uh, work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I spent a couple of years, uh, at TSA when that was new. And then I spent, um, some time at the postal service and then at FCC, uh, and, um, you know, this were different kinds of challenges. Uh, around about 2006, uh, my business partner uh, approached me uh, and suggested that we start uh, this company. We weren't partners yet. I was a little reluctant uh, to do so, but then um, my wife got pregnant with our first uh, child. Uh, <laughs> and I realized after uh, he was born, so shortly after he was born, I realized that I wanted more flexibility uh, in my life, more freedom to sort of um, control my own destiny. So, mm-hmm. so uh, I quit the, my job at the FCC and Nathan and I started Eight Shapes. And that was uh, now nine and a half years ago uh, or so. Wow. Uh, and uh, it's always been a small user experience consulting uh, company. Uh, I continue to focus more on the information architecture and uh, user research uh, side of things. Um, and, uh, it's been, uh, a great run. Uh, we've had opportunities to work with lots and lots of different, uh, clients. And for me, one of the more satisfying things I get to do besides working directly with clients is also lead, uh, design teams, uh, and sort of think a lot about how teams can work well together, uh, effectively. Great. Great. Which leads me to my next question. You wrote, one of the books you wrote is Designing Together, uh, the Collaboration and Conflict Management Handbook for Designers. And in it, you talk about fixed and growth mindsets. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean in the context of design? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I wrote Designing Together because I was thinking a lot about um, what makes for a good uh, team. Uh, 
my first book was about design documentation, which mm. I thought was an interesting and compelling topic. Um, but whenever I would give workshops or talks on it, people would come to me and they wouldn't ask about the documents or the artifacts themselves. They would ask me about how do I get people to read my documentation or how do I, you know, get people to participate in the process of uh, doing the design work. Uh, and so what I realized is that as important as the documentation is, people were really, really interested in what makes for good uh, collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, there was this really big backlash a few years ago against uh, documentation, which I thought was really weird. Um, probably not the weirdest thing ever to happen in the <laughs> web business, but it was weird. And um, it got me thinking a lot about not the tools that people use, but their attitude towards how mm -hmm. to do their work. Uh, and that was, uh, I started using the word mindset. And then actually Nathan pointed me to um, a psychologist who was doing work in this era. She called her work Mindset. And her book is called Mindset. Her name is Carol Dweck. And she wrote this book about uh, these studies that she'd been doing uh, over the years about uh, attitude and specifically our attitude towards challenge. The, the studies basically show that if someone has been called um, smart all their lives, they are actually more reluctant to take on a challenge mm. because they believe that uh, if they fail at the challenge, the, uh, they will sort of undermine their own self-identity. Uh, and this is what she calls the fixed mindset, this sort of inherent belief that uh, I am who I am and nothing that I do uh, will will change that. Hmm. Um, I see this in my uh, in uh, one of my children. Uh, he hates practicing the piano. <laughs> uh, and it's because, I believe, it's because it doesn't come naturally uh, to him. And so he feels like, you know, anything he puts his mind to, he can do pretty well, except piano. And so uh, this he sort of exhibits this fixed mindset where he doesn't want to do it at all. Because, you know, the, when he's starting out a new piece, it, he really struggles to get, mm -hmm. to get it going. The converse, what she noticed in doing these studies, is that the converse is a growth mindset. These are people who uh, embrace a challenge because they understand that that's part of the learning process. And maybe they'll get frustrated, uh, but they won't shy away from it uh, altogether. And her work has yielded some kind of strange advice uh, for parents and coaches and, you know, uh, teachers and um, you know, anyone in sort of position to give praise, you know, we sort of go out of our way to praise effort rather than praise outcomes, hmm. um, which I think ends up being sounding really strange if you're the person receiving the praise. Um, but uh, for me, this was enormously eye-opening because I noticed that I had people working on my teams who were uh, afraid to step up um, or they were afraid to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And I realized it was because they felt like they had something to prove. Uh, so to me, that exhibited fixed mindset uh, mm -hmm. behavior. Right. Uh, the idea that asking for help um, is sort of equivalent to failing in their own mind. And really, collaboration and design is in design is all about people working together and providing support for each other. Right, right. Well, and so, you know, let's talk about that a little bit more. How do you manage people who don't? who don't ask for help? How do you coach them along? Um, you know, I, I sometimes joke that as <laughs> a manager or as a team lead or as a consultant, I play the role of, of therapist. <laughs> and, um, you know, now that I say that out loud, it sounds horrible. Um, but 
I mean, I think we all feel that to a greater or lesser extent that we're sort of helping our colleagues uh, overcome uh, their biggest obstacles, which is often themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, who am I to do that, really? Because I've got my own obstacles other than a colleague and hopefully a friend. Mm -hmm. I feel like um, what I experience says that calling people out on this stuff directly can often put them on the defensive. Uh, and sometimes it's okay to let them fail a little bit, to, to let them take their own neuroses a little too far, uh, and then use that as a learning opportunity right? mm-hmm. to say, let's, how are we going to do this differently uh, next time? Um, Nathan and I, in running Eight Shapes, we're sort of constantly reminding people you know, be sure to ask for help. You know, don't don't paint yourself into a corner. Don't wait until it's too late. All of these things. But until the rubber meets the road, that is to say a specific person is in a specific situation, mm-hmm. it's hard for them to internalize uh, those things. Um, uh, another thing that I do is kind of what I would call a technique uh, called going back to basics, right? So um, base, going back to basics is like having regular check-in meetings uh, or um, uh, asking people to send out a status report, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like something that's like project management 101, and yet there's a reason those tools uh, exist. So asking your team to adhere to some of those practices um, allows me as lead to be alerted uh, when these problems might arise, when someone's not asking for help, uh, and they should be. Okay, yeah, it gives you the check at least um, of knowing when they might be going a little too far. <laughs> so, can you talk about um, mindset some more? In particular, I'd like to know if you think you can change people's mindsets one hundred percent of the time, or um, or if you can't, how do you know when to give up and move on? I, look, I think being part of a design team is doing things that are uncomfortable. Um, and for me, mindset has become kind of a signal for me that, or my own mindset has become a signal for me when I'm entering territory that's a little uncomfortable. Um, you know, to uh, paint my personality with a broad brush, I would say maybe I'm a little uh, introverted, right? Or I find it uncomfortable to be, to participate in group activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I dread them, you know, but Uh, I know that they are part of my job and that I have to do them. And even though every fiber of my being is saying, oh, I just want to get out of this room, uh, there's also part of me that knows this is making me a better designer, a better lead, a better consultant, all of those things. So I think to a certain extent, um, you know, I definitely appreciate some of the messages that are out in the industry that say, uh, you know, a... um, there are opportunities for all types of mindsets to get together. But I also think part of being in this business is uh, embracing the things that we are uncomfortable with uh, and trying to go against the grain of your personality because that's where the growth happens. That's where you become better at what you do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a universal lesson for those that are self-aware. <laughs> I, well, and it's great that you use the word self-aware because I feel like that's when people ask me what's the most important skill to cultivate as a designer, mm-hmm. I think it's self-awareness. Um, you know, it's we talk a lot about empathy. We talk a lot about, you know, putting yourself in the user's shoes or in your colleague's shoes. And I think that's really important. But what I like, I like working with designers who understand what's going to be hard for them. Because when they know that, they can ask for help, right? They're good at saying, you know what? 
uh, visual design is not my forte. So I'll take a crack at it, but I'm really going to need some help making sure I get it right. Or, um, you know, I know that front end development is not what you hired me to do. I'd like to take a stab at it. And I know I'm going to need some mentoring in that area. All of those kinds of messages are enormously helpful um, for me as a lead, uh, but also for the designer themselves to have an understanding of where they thrive and where are the opportunities for growth. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so talk to me about managing conflict. How do you identify productive versus unhealthy conflict? So one of the things that I talk about in the book is this distinction between healthy and, and unhealthy conflict. Uh, and I think design depends on conflict, right? It depends on mm-hmm. you and I disagreeing about uh, whether this idea that I have solves a problem, right? Because it's that uh, back and forth that allows me to make the design uh, better. But sometimes people just don't like each other uh, or they don't like the circumstances that they're in and they take it out on each other, um, which sounds immature. But I mean, you know, I've been doing this long enough where I know sometimes that happens, right? We we don't deal with these situations. People don't deal with these situations really well. Mm-hmm. Um and so they take it out on each other. They either get very political, they try and exclude each other, uh, or they get very harsh. Um, and that harshness, when it becomes personal, when it becomes not about the design, but about the designer, uh, to me, that's an indication that the, the conflict is um, unhealthy. That being said, sometimes what I've noticed is that uh, stakeholders will descend into unhealthy conflict because they don't have the tools to make conflict productive. That is to say, they'll say things like, well, that's stupid, or I don't get that, um, which feel personal, um, but are really just a mask for uh, the fact that they don't have the right language uh, Mm -hmm. to talk about design in a productive way. And so I think it's important for the designer to uh, distance themselves from those statements uh, and then educate their stakeholder about what it is that they need uh, in order to uh, improve upon it. I mean, and talk about, you know, uh, trying to go against the grain of your personality. You know, when someone is coming at you with harsh personal statements, taking a step back and being um, trying to turn that into something productive is incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I love the, that you use the word language too. I was talking to Adam Connor a few weeks back and he was, he was talking about um, just that, the choice of words people use in, in his particular case, he was talking about design critiques, but it's, it's so much of it comes down to the choice of words or the language used. Um which, you know, can be taken, misinterpreted one way or the other. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's a sign of maturity in a team when they worry, they can worry less about the packaging, the, mm-hmm. word, the, the word choice, and they can just be as direct and as straightforward as possible. Um, you know, if you're still caught up in or if someone is still caught up in, you know, the exact words uh, that I'm using and that, uh, you know, we've been working together for years and years, it feels like that is indicative of a collaborative relationship that hasn't matured very far. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I think that when we're being deliberate about the words that we're choosing, it's an indication that uh, there's opportunity for the relationship to 
to grow. Absolutely. Um, so you, you you write a lot. You wrote an, um, a piece that I believe appeared on Medium, Do As I Say, Not As I Do, Assorted Wisdom for Students of UX, and you talk about imposter syndrome. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what your advice is here, because I found for the first time this sort of clicked for me, um, knowing what it is, of course, but saying how do you how do you embrace it or engage with it and say, okay, move on. Can you talk a little bit about about your advice there? Yeah, uh, imposter syndrome is the idea that even someone like me, 20 years into my career, still thinks, what am I doing here? Why are people <laughs> listening to me? I literally am making this up as I go along. And actually, I have this really good example. Um, the other day, one of my colleagues, Chris, he's just signed a new project. And he uh, sends me a message and says, I'd really like you to be involved with this project, um, you know, just as an advisory role, because I could really, you know, use use your help uh, on it. And I swear to God, my first reaction was, why does he want me to do this? And I, and I just thought, and then in the next moment I have, well, why am I reacting like that? That's ridiculous. Um, so I think it, even for someone who's now decades into a career, that notion that maybe I shouldn't be here, uh, <laughs> is, uh, you know, persists. Um, it, I realized that I just need to be okay with that because part of being a designer is constantly doubting yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, it sort of comes with the territory. That's the advice that I wrote in that particular article was being a designer means looking at your work and going, this could be better. This could be better, right? You're almost constantly saying that. Uh, to yourself. Um, the, the, I think the hard part for designers is to look at that not as a excuse to stop, uh, but as an excuse to uh, keep going. You could go too far in the other direction, right? You can get into the sort of analysis paralysis <laughs> where you're constantly churning on something because it's not perfect, right? The, the other end of that is, uh, or I guess perfectionism and mm -hmm. imposter syndrome are really two sides of the same coin. Um, but there is a, a balance, I think, that designers seek, which is I understand that I need to be skeptical of the work that I do because it's through that skepticism that I experience discomfort and challenge myself to do better. Mm -hmm. um, at, at the same time, they need to acknowledge that um, it's not just them, right? That everyone is sort of experiencing that because that's the nature of design. Absolutely. I love it that you, you're proposing people just uh, use it as a strength, right, to reinforce their, their own work. Um, talk to me a little bit, switching gears, talk to me a little bit about what you think the future of design education looks like. That's so weird. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I was a philosophy major, right? So, I mean, I really have no idea. I wish um, more people studied philosophy, honestly. Um, because uh, there's the problems are going to get harder. Mm -hmm. Technology is going to become more complex. You know, we're going to need specialists uh, who understand the nuts and bolts of the technology in a way that um, you know even makes today's standards look paltry. So I I don't know what it looks like. Uh, I was I'm uh, was at General Assembly on uh, Monday or was it last week? I don't remember. I was at General Assembly recently. Mm -hmm. General Assembly is a, a school. They've got uh, um, they've got locations uh, all over the world. I think. Yeah. They they hold immersive seminars on user experience design and web development and product management and things like that. Uh, and 
I was sitting on a panel talking about the, the tech scene in Washington, D.C., and I had this bizarre epiphany while I was sitting there that all the people who were uh, in the class that I was talking to, all those people chose to be there. Mm-hmm. And that means they kind of went out of their way to say, I want to study user experience. And all the people on the panel didn't make that choice. I mean, we ostensibly made that choice because we landed in this field, but it wasn't like we went to college and said, I'm going to get a, you know, a degree in user experience, that thing that didn't exist then. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's this interesting generational shift between showing up in a field, right? And consciously making a decision to pursue a field. Um, and I, so I don't know what that means in terms of education. Mm-hmm. Um, I still believe that the best designers have a grounding in critical thinking and problem solving in being able to take complicated ideas and render them in a way that's accessible and meaningful. Uh, and um, speaking from my own experience, I like the liberal arts for that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but um, it was not nearly as competitive when I got into this field. So right. that's it feels like a luxury for me to say. Well, it's also, it's interesting um, because I also, you could, one could argue that that is a strength of the field as it is today because of people like you. I mean, so many designers I talk to, they come from liberal arts backgrounds. They are not, they are not formally educated in design of any kind. Um, And one could argue that that's what the future of education should look like. It shouldn't be strictly a design focus. You know, that you talk about critical thinking. These are things that I don't necessarily think are taught across the board in, say, design programs, right? Right. Right. Um, But that there could be this cross-discipline approach at the university level for, for this field at some point. I think it's enormously important because uh, things like, um, uh, I mean, I talk a lot about philosophy, but even things like uh, psychology mm-hmm. um, are at the heart uh, of, of user experience. And I'm sure, you know, the 10, 12 week immersive at places like General Assembly are great and they give me a lot of practical skills, but do, do I really get that kind of grounding, um, mm-hmm. which teaches me to think about users uh, in a different way, right? In a, or from a, a unique perspective. Um, so I take, I, I agree with that. I mean, if, if my kids say, I want to go do what you do, uh, I'm going to tell them to go get a liberal arts degree because they can learn the technology is changing so fast. Anything that they learn in school from a technical perspective is going to be different by the time they get out of school anyway. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Um, talk to me about people or projects that are grabbing your attention as of late, if there are any. Um, do you mean out there in the world or that I'm doing myself? Either or. Whatever you feel like. I really, uh, I mean, I guess the two domains that I pay a special attention to are uh, government and health. Hmm. Uh, and government, I think just by virtue of my geography, um, being based here in DC and being tapped into the, the scene here in DC means inevitably, uh, meeting designers and UX folks, uh, in and around the government. Um, it's been great to watch this transformation over the last 10 years. Uh, you know, when I was doing UX in the government, um, in the early two thousands, uh, good design was kind of an uphill battle. Um, and that's, 
uh, obviously transformed a lot. I think it was uh, the Obama campaign that put design uh, more in the limelight, um, but also just a general understanding of the role and responsibility of government uh, and the role that the internet can play uh, in that. So with the emergence of organizations like uh, 18F and digital services, it's been really great to kind of see how um, the government is embracing a really a lean UX mindset um, to kind of put products uh, out there. Uh, and so it's been enormously satisfying to see that. Um, the other thing I, I look at is health. Um, I'm a uh, longtime patient, so I, uh, you know, like, I feel like I can be especially um, uh, sensitive to user needs uh, in that area. Uh, and um, health is kind of like government in that it's uh, generally behind the times, right? It's generally five to 10 years behind what other industries are doing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the clients that are approaching us now are our health. And I'm seeing just a lot more talk about um, health and UX. The, the patient populations are starting to get to a point where they're prepared to embrace uh, the internet. When we talked about health in tech, you know, 10 years ago, there were so many concerns about privacy uh, and things like that. And I think a lot of those issues are starting to take a back seat. So there's a lot more innovation happening there. That's great. That's great. It is great to see. It's great to see um, folks also recognizing that design can solve real systemic problems um, with both of those those spaces and there are plenty of problems <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> to I mean, be solved yeah i mean i so i'm a one of my doctors in the, is in the johns hopkins uh network and uh i've been using their patient portal uh and it's abysmal and uh i get frustrated like if i if they they'll post my test results but i don't really understand what any of those numbers mean because there's no context as, attached to them so what i'll do is i'll take a screenshot of it and i'll email that to my GP, who then I can have a conversation with that about. But it just seems so antiquated to have to take a screenshot of test results that don't have a whole lot of context around them. Right. Just, so there's part of me that's annoyed by that, but then there's also part of me that's like, well, this is a hell of a lot better than it was 10 years ago or you know, 30 years ago when my mom was dealing with this for me as a younger patient. And it's a step in the right direction, right? Mm-hmm. We can sit and complain about it, or we can go, you know what? It's better than it was. And it's creates a stepping stone for us to get to something even uh, better. Absolutely. I agree with you. I just went through the same process and thought to myself as I was looking at the portal, who did they build the portal for? <laughs> right. Oh, wait, they built it for the, the, the doctor because yes. this is the only person that's going to understand these results. Yes, exactly. Oh, boy. But you're right. It is. It is a long way. And so, you know, having that mindset and saying, okay, what's next? Um, how can we do one better is, is a great attitude. For, for the book that I'm working on now, I've been, I read a lot of books on creativity mm. um, and it it's really changed my perspective on things. I used to be more cynical about some of the novelty websites, um, even things like Twitter, which are extremely popular, right? And Twitter is doing its best to find a business model and find some social good uh, that that comes out of it. Um, But reading these books on creativity has me thinking differently about websites like that and and products like that, because everything becomes a stepping stone for something else. 
uh, Stephen Johnson's book, Where Good Ideas Come From, he talks about the printing press, Gutenberg's printing press, mm -hmm. and movable type existed and wine presses existed, right? Pressing grapes existed. And he basically just merged those two technologies. So you can be cynical about, you know, products that seem ridiculous, but the, the optimist in me realizes that you never know what product is going to transform or inspire someone to create the next thing like the printing press, right? So I may look at something, I don't know, look at some ridiculous website, but that in turn then inspires me to transform uh, health in some way, right? Online health in some way. Absolutely. So, so it's uh, it's been gratifying to sort of look at the landscape of the internet with uh, this, these new lenses. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What is what is the title of your next book? Uh, it's tentatively titled Design Discovery. Mm. Um, so I'm writing, a, and this is what the workshop is on for uh, the O'Reilly Design Conference. Um, discovery is that portion of the design process where designers engage in a lot of uh, learning, trying to fill in gaps in their knowledge mm -hmm. to create a foundation that they can uh, design from. A lot of people call it research or requirements. Um, I feel like it's all of that and much more. Uh, and it's something that uh, we at my firm, Eight Shapes, have we've thought a lot about what constitutes discovery. I feel like um, there's also a surge in interest because of uh, product management and how product discovery is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like uh, there's uh, a lot of opportunity to help create a way of thinking and talking about discovery in a more productive way. So that's the impetus for this book. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it is, it's such, well, as you know, if you don't get that part right, you're off, you're off on the wrong foot already. Yes. <laughs> um, one final question for you. How, how do you stay relevant given the extreme rate of change in this space? This is something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, now that I'm in my 40s and many of my peers are in our 40s, it's, I never thought I would be the old guy um, in, a, in an industry. Like, it just never occurred to me. And it's one of these things where you feel like you just sort of, all of a sudden you show up and you're the old guy. Um, <laughs> and my wife tells me that being old is really a state of mind and I shouldn't call myself old and I don't feel old. But, um, you know, I go to places like General Assembly and I see rooms filled with uh, you know, 20 somethings who are eager to get into this business and who are going to be um, better trained than I ever was. They're going to be, um, uh, have a lot more technical chops and have the ability to stay up to date with the technology a lot more. Uh, it doesn't scare me, but what I worry about is a preoccupation with youth and with technical chops that undermines what experience uh, can bring uh, to the table. So I think um, for me, I've been trying to change my mindset um, <laughs> and um, do things like uh, read books outside of the design world. Um, there's something about the experience that I have that allows me to take those perspectives that I read and uh, bring them to bear in the design world. So things like uh, books on creativity. Yeah, there's there's some relationship to design, but I'm talking about, um, you know, Stephen Johnson, who's looking at innovation, uh, you know, across millennia, really. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about um, uh, 
uh, the the psychologist who wrote the book Flow. He wrote a book on creativity, which oh, yeah. talks, about, talks about creativity from a psychological perspective. I think all of these things have an impact on how we do our work, but it takes experience leading teams to really understand how to bring that stuff uh, to bear. Um, so staying relevant to me means bringing some of that thinking uh, into uh, the work uh, that we do. So philosophy and psychology and history and all of that stuff, um, even some of the cultural studies, which is really, really big these days, all of that is um, super important for how do we manage teams? How do we think about teams? How do we try and dip our toe into this river of innovation and creativity that history has created for us? You know, when we're just working on little individual websites here and there, there's a way to tap into that energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think our staying relevant means um, uh, finding ways to tap into that um, based on the the experience that we've had being here from the beginning uh, of, of the business. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that I like to do is engage with younger uh, designers um, and uh, par- participating in events at our local general assembly for me is almost like a design assignment, right? It's a way for me to talk to younger folks and understand What's important to them? What are they worried about? What are they, uh, what uh, are they most excited about and, or interested in, in terms of the design world? In a sense, they are my users, right? And I become a resource for them. Um, and understanding those things allows me to shape and focus the things that I'm interested in and learning about. So again, I can create meaning, make those, make that, those topics uh, accessible for them. For a lot of kids in school, it's very much about how do I get into this industry, right? Uh, and so keeping aware of opportunities in town, keeping aware of uh, different uh stories that people have told me in terms of how they have gotten into the industry, all of that gives me a, uh, as well as my own experience, gives me this kind of knowledge that I can use to talk about that that particular uh, topic. The one other thought I'd had about this was, um, uh, and we had talked a little bit about this already, but I noticed some of my peers um, tweeting or posting things to Facebook uh, that imply some bitterness. Uh, and I I felt this myself. I was at uh, Midwest UX about a month ago and I would go to talks and, you know, there was the New Yorker in me who was like, oh, we, been, we were talking about this shit 15 years ago. Like, I can't believe we're still talking about this. Like, you know, they're bringing out tired old metaphors and they're, you know, it's like same stuff over and over again. Um, and, you know, why don't they just read my book? I mean, that's really what it comes down to uh, if I'm honest with myself. And, I, and again, you know, the theme of this conversation has been, you've got to go against the grain of your gut reactions. You have to go against the grain of your personality. I need to push that. And we all need to push that bitterness aside and see what is, what is the good part of them rehashing this stuff. And maybe this is how they need to learn it, right? Maybe this is how the next generation of designers need to internalize this stuff. Maybe this is an entree into a conversation with them uh, that allows us to bring our own experience to bear uh, on the work uh, that they're doing. It's easy for me to get annoyed with someone who's come up with a new way of doing wireframes that isn't new because I wrote about it in a book 10 years ago, right? It's easy for me to get annoyed by that. But I can also use that as a mechanism to say, uh, what can I learn from this? What's important to the business right now? And how can I contribute to this conversation in a way that doesn't make me seem like a grumpy old man? 
<laughs> that is great advice. Healthy, healthy attitude. I love it. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. I had a great time chatting with you, Mary. Thank you. Dan can be reached through his Twitter handle at Brownorama. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.